0: All Peace right.
1: P-Stan. Stan, welcome to the podcast.
0: <laughs> Great to be here. Thanks so much for reconnecting first and foremost as a friend now. Um, yeah,
1: totally. And, um, and so for context, told- for those listening, um, Stan, why, the reason I call him Peace stan uh, is because he used to be Professor Stan at Biola. Um, he taught um, some engineering classes and was doing research um, along with many other things. Um, we recently got to reconnect through mission church, uh, in Ventura. Um, so wanted to have Stan on, have some, uh, conversation about science, engineering, education. Um, yeah, excited for it. So, uh, I'll kind of open up with the question. What are you doing now, uh, for work and how'd you, how'd you get to where you are?
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. Thanks for having me on here. Um, so, uh, so as, uh, alluded, yes, I was formerly, um, at Biola and, um, what had happened was, um, my wife, um, got a pretty killer job offer, um, out here in the Ventura County area. And, um, it was one of those things where, um, uh, I mean, let's back it up just a little bit. Um, my, my wife, she was um, where she was working, it was a grant-funded position, uh, which meant there was a time duration, um, but also an amount as well, which wasn't really the problem. It's more the time duration because um, the duration was 36 months. Um, it took them eight months just to uh, onboard her, and then she worked for eight months. So now you're looking at about almost half of the time elapsed already. And, um, it got to the point where, uh, she needed to, you know, if if she, she loved the organization. Um, so it, it was a matter of finding the next opportunity and starting early, especially if they're going to take that long to onboard interview, negotiate, whatever, you know, whatever is needed. And, um, at least within within the area i was living in la mirada not too far away from campus um so you know for listeners who know it's at the border at the cusp of la orange county like we were literally a stone's throw away um off of hillsborough from orange county but we were living on the Mm -hmm. la county side and um so you know anywhere in that area so you're looking at um, Orange County, uh, places, LA places, anywhere that's driving distance. Um, so we would keep my position at by obviously, and, um, she would, uh, she could commute. Um, nothing was biting. So she, so she saw, um, my brother had posted a position on his Instagram, uh, stories, um, and the stories are reels. Instagram reels,
1: reels, reels, right? uh, reels are the short videos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. Oh, so it's a stories then a picture story. Um,
1: there you go. I'm
0: starting to sound like a dinosaur here. Um, <laughs>
1: by the way, did you sign up for thread? I know that's like the new thing now. I, I saw that. I don't know anything about it, but I downloaded okay. the app so I can play around with it at some point. Yeah.
0: I just signed up for it. And, um, I mean, we could talk about that too. We really
1: yeah, just, yeah, totally. Um,
0: yeah, so uh yeah, so he posted it as a picture story, just a screenshot, right? And um she just said, "Ah, you know, I'll just apply it, whatever, you know. She she's familiar with the organization. Um but yeah, and within six weeks they offered. And this was in the middle of summer. So, you know, Brandon, Brain, if you can imagine this, um we had just had our senior banquet um we had our end of the year stuff and my emails, you know, casting vision for next year. There were these big plans to um, you know, start new programs and everything. Yeah. And yeah. it was in the middle of summer um when we found out that she got this offer and it was also within in the middle of summer where uh we also received confirmation from the Lord to close one door and open another. Um so it was hard, um, you know. I loved, I loved Biola. I loved you guys, especially. It's really the students who make, you know, what Biola is today. And really, that's, those are the things I cherish. I mean, we you know we'll talk about this in ed- when we talk about education. You know, it's like this, the stuff that I teach to you guys. It's not like it's not like you can't get it off anywhere else, you know, off of YouTube or whatever. You know. Yeah. Um, But what makes it meaningful is are the people, and that's. Um, and that's and that's what made it hard. Um, it took me about you know, a good eight to ten months to grieve. <laughs> Let's just call it a year. Right? Yeah, um, yeah. It took a while to grieve, and um, you know, part of it is, you know, seeing what you know, how the program is developing. And by the way, just the, the program's doing great. You know, we had just recently hired hired a new faculty member who has lots of great experience, and she's just trailblazing. And um, it's just amazing to see um, how you know, essentially. I would say, you know, the department's even better now. So yeah. it's great to see that. Um, so, yeah, so that's what prompted us to move out here. And part of that is I, I there's nothing there's I didn't really have position lined up. It was a matter of, hey, once we move out here, I'll figure it out. You know, I've an engineering background, you know, I'll figure something out. Um Unfortunately, in this area, um, there isn't really much engineering. And, you know, Brandon, you've kind of mentioned in our off times that you yeah. know, as you kind of are looking around and whatnot, it's noticing that it's a little slim compared to L.A., Orange County. Totally. Um, it is it is what it is, um, you know, like, you know, there's some history behind that. But, um, yeah, I, I, I first thought, look, you know, maybe this is an opportunity for me to go back into industry or something. OK, well. There's really nothing around here that's up my alley and um, and little did we find out as we're driving down here, um, you have this wonderful school, uh, a private <laughs> Christian school up on the hills in Westlake Village, California. and um, we happen to and then I happen to have a mutual um, connection there. So as I was saying goodbye to my mentors, uh, one of my mentors in Talbot, uh, Dr. Ben Shin, um, he, uh, he, he said, Hey, I actually know the vice principal, um, at that school. So reach out to him and see if anything could happen. And, and I did. So sent in, you know, sent to LinkedIn, right. It's like, we tell you guys to use LinkedIn, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I connected uh, with him through LinkedIn and, um, it said, look, you know, I know it's a little late in the game in terms of hiring teachers. Um, but you know, anything part-time works if you need me to be like, a." like an afternoon, evening monitor um, so students can work on projects and whatnot. Uh, you need someone to scrub toilets. I love to do that too. Uh, <laughs> I just, I, I know, I look at the pictures and you guys have a very nice engineering space. And um, yeah, so, so that happened. And then um, a few, within, within a day, um, I got a call to schedule an, inter- an interview Wow. So I had my first round interview, like the what, I messaged this guy on Friday. My, my first round interview was on Monday, uh, <laughs> you know, remote. Right. Um, and it was with principal, math chair and some others. Then I had another interview uh, with the engineering teacher, the director of the engineering institute. Um, and then I had a third interview with the head of school. And their are HR, um, the chief of staff. And then I had my final interview with the associate head of school. He's um, essentially kind of like the innovation guy or that he's part of the academic team, but kind of more on the innovation side. So he, he really looks to see at He, he, he looks um, at what future things they can do um, right. so that they're not just teaching what normal high schools teach, um, but. They're actually trailblazing that way too. So um and that was fun. Uh and then yeah, within within a week they offered uh, a full-time position. Um not a night monitor position or anything, but an <laughs> actually like in an actual teaching a teaching position, which um you know for someone for for the Lord to move so quickly with my wife's thing and then also move so quickly with my thing as well. Um, it was just amazing. And, you know, yeah. to this day, as my wife and I were reflect are reflecting on that, we still just can't fathom, <laughs> um, kind of how everything was pieced together. Um, but yeah. you know, as, as my head of school w- w- said to me, um, you know, we don't know where the wind blows. We don't know, uh, from what direction, um, and when the spirit moves, the spirit moves, you can't really contain it. Totally. Can't really stop it. So yeah, so that's yeah. where I am. So, so what? Am I, so, all that to say, okay, go back to your question. What do <laughs> I do now? I'm a high school engineering teacher, um, but at the same time, because of the diverse skill set and the topics in engineering, uh, I'm also a, um, uh, I guess, secondhand math, physics, uh, whatever other subjects they need. Um, it gets kind of you know, it's interesting because if you remember, you know, in high school, engineering courses aren't part of the core, right? It's um math classes are part of the core. Um and those would take precedent technically, uh, which actually happened this past year. I was teaching actually 80% math and only 20% engineering. Um and part of that was uh yeah, I mean they were just short in math teachers. And because that in-person math experience was a priority. Um, I think I was scheduled to teach like four computer science courses. They just, everyone just went to um, the online school. So, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, mixed reviews there. <laughs> but um, yeah. but what I have in store for next year is 100% engineering. And uh, we could wow. talk about that yeah. later, so.
1: Cool. So um, um, how, Um, given kind of like the change in, um, what you're doing, um, you've also got the, the PhD research going on in the background. Um, so maybe you can kind of wrap that in. How has the switch to, um, Oaks Christian kind of tied into that research? And then that can give you kind of a chance to explain what the research you're doing is too.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so, um, so I'm currently doing a PhD in engineering, uh, through Mississippi state. Um, it is a hundred percent fully online program. And part of that is, um, you know, because of just my current life circumstance, um, do I recommend online? I mean, sorry, I didn't mean this to turn to like a career counseling or grad school (laughs) counseling type of thing, but, um, you know, do your shopping, right? Just cause I did it online, um, doesn't mean it's for everyone, (laughs) <laughs> um I'm every three years you know the lord uproots my wife and i to somewhere else and being in online programs has actually worked out for us because if anything that was the only thing that was continuous <laughs> were you know some online programs so yeah um but yeah it's phd in engineering uh but with the concentration in engineering education so the unique thing about the program is um it's engineering first concentration in engineering education which means um there is a you know, there's obviously the engineering technical competency that's behind it. So whatever dissertation or research that I do, there needs to be an engineer, like a known engineering, um, uh, I guess, component to a technical component. And then on the education side, um, engineering education specifically, the impact has to be in, it either has to be, it has to be an education with some, in some way, shape or form. So um, the way uh, doctoral programs work, um, at least here in America, um, you have coursework, um, so it's my coursework is a collection between classes in engineering education, education, um, educational psychology, and core engineering courses. And then my dis- and then what you have to find is usually you usually have to find a committee of people who's willing to sign off. Um, that's the difference between let's say a bachelor's or a ma- or some master's programs where um, you know as long as you take the class and you pass, you check the boxes when you check degree audit or whatever. And what that means is, you know, you've done, you've accomplished enough to get that piece of paper. Uh, when you, um, when you finish, uh, your doctoral dissertation, um, your committee, it comes down to the four people, um, or, or fewer depending on which school you go to. But for me, generally it's around four. Um, you need to get them all to like approve and sign off on it. If they don't, um, you're stuck, or you have to keep going, keep doing research, or whatever maybe, um, and that's just uh, it, it. So it's different. It's a different kind of um, learning style, learning system, which kind of ties into you know the research side of it. Um, so the thing that I, so I'm currently focused on um, on the engineer education side, it, focusing on the idea of creativity, innovation, and really just developing this like mindset. Um that students have, uh, or what or can or are, are students able to actually develop that or learn that within the classroom? Mm. And how that kind of translates over to the high school is um, well, I was doing some of this research actually at Biola. Um, if you didn't know or if others didn't know. Yeah. And um and we would um uh you know take the data there and do some analysis. But now that I'm in the high school you know the extra it you know, was i'm still keeping the same thing but the extra layer now is um can we do this at a younger age now right um you know we're now starting to see things like and you know i have my board of you know i have my board of uh, my advisory board at my institute of engineering as well you know you have i have a guy who's been a cto for like nine companies and he even says you know he's willing to take a kid out of high school, straight out of high school, hire them full-time as long as they can show competency in their programming skills. Right. Right. Um, so, you know, when it comes to the idea of innovation, tooling, task, you know, developing task oriented, um, you know, skills and stuff like that. Um, can we do that now at a younger age? So um, thankfully in terms of my doctoral research, it hasn't really um uh, I wasn't at this, I I was at a point where I, I'm not, I haven't, uh, I'm not stuck yet with my research, but I'm able to still kind of, you know, wiggle some things around here and there. So it's still a little nimble, which is good. Um, but eventually, you know, hopefully it'll kind of boil down and kind of hone into, um, the high school side.
1: Um,
0: so yeah, so that's my research there.
1: Cool. Um, now, I, I want to dive into that a little bit. Um, sure. What interesting things have you found um, as you've spent time kind of thinking about this and analyzing this uh, yeah. question? So whenever we, whenever you think about research,
0: um, at least for like early researchers, um, a, a really big thing that you got to... You gotta be able to do is you got you gotta enjoy reading. (laughs) Um there's a (laughs) lot of reading, a lot of reading in very small text sizes as well and whatnot. And some of it can be dense. Um so for me personally, the the big thing that really um drew me into this idea of innovation is comes from this theory um that was that's created called the Kinevin framework. So the Kinevin framework is um i don't know if you're able to put pictures or share screens or
1: whatever yeah there is actually a share screen option okay you know what yeah do you
0: mind if i kind of
1: find it and post it yeah please Uh, so
0: i know it's kind of crude when you're using google images
1: here
0: um sorry not to be like not scientific here but (laughs) (laughs) hey that's right but we but just going off of wikipedia here um So, so this is the kind framework. Um, so you have four different domains where you have clear, complicate, complicated, complex, and chaotic. So it starts on quadrant four, the bottom right. And it goes um, counterclockwise. And if you can just, if you look at just some of like the big words here, you can kind of see how at the end of the day, what we're looking at is we're looking at greater disorder. So clear being, um, you know, things are easy tasks. It's complicated, complex, chaotic, and in the middle is confusion or disorder. Um, and that's usually the space where a lot of um when you think about uh corporate innovation, and so how do you innovate in a corporate company? So I think well some of the more recent things that you see that we've been seeing on the news are like NVIDIA and whatnot. It's like you, you think that GPUs and video processors and whatnot is like um is we're at a peak or something. No, like there's always, there's always more to innovate. And um, part of it is, you know, especially when you're looking at the two bigs, right. You have NVIDIA, you have AMD and you're trying to figure out, well, how do we now, um, how do we be like the next big thing or what, how can we like break through um, besides just this, you know, this trajectory that we're heading towards because we're at a point where, in some technology, um, it's starting to plateau in terms of how much we could do because, you know, you can only optimize so much. You can only process so much, so quickly. You can only have, um, you know, you can win by a few seconds and whatnot. But at the end of the day, it comes back to like, okay, well, does that matter for the everyday person? And who does that really matter to most, right? Right. Right. Um, and then now with the rise of artificial intelligence, I mean that completely like just ruptured everything, and now incorporating artificial intelligence and machine learning into um, GPUs and whatnot, it's it's pretty um, that kind of like broke the cycle, right? So it's no longer just a rat race to being quicker, but now it's like now we've actually added other things. So there's right. this idea of combinatory effect that's actually happening, which is pretty mm-hmm. interesting. Um, but yeah, the commitment framework this was implemented. Um, um, at a large company back in the day, um, I get a company that was a competitor to like Dell and whatnot. And one, and the story goes, um, a consultant came in and basically went through the, the entire company and tried to identify and to classify what did each, uh, what was like the everyday task that people had to do in the, um, uh, at the company. Uh, because they were losing this rat race, and you have this big giant dell that just came out of nowhere and it 's like you're competing against you know with HP and whatnot and um and this was you know back in the day and now one of the things that he noticed is that by using this um, this framework this this theoretical framework along with an assessment tool so quiz or survey or whatever um he mm-hmm. identified that that company kind of was kept to this clear maybe complicated like these lines that separate these different domains um, these are really big barriers as well which you know we can't really get into during our time here but to even to go from the clear to the complicated you know there's a big barrier that you need to hop over because um, I mean when you think about even yourself as a student it's like how do you how do you know the difference between uh, an easy problem versus a hard problem in let's say a test like can you quantify that or can you qualify that? Right? right. Um, and how, and then you start questioning, well, you know, if it's a multiple choice, I can guess. And if it's like free response, <laughs> then it's more, I don't know. Um, some, t- but to some people, and this is where individualized learning comes And some people, a free response actually is better than a multiple choice. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know for me, a free res- multiple choice actually gives me more anxiety <laughs> than free response. Um, written tests to me, um, gives is, Gives me more anxiety than, let's say, um, an oral test. Um, I'm more of a verbal processor, uh, more so, uh, more so than you know, a traditional test taker here. Right. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, it comes down to this, and that—that's really the the underlying like theory, theoretical framework that I'm working with is actually seeing this and seeing where does innovation exist. Does it exist right. here does it exist here does it exist here does it exist only in the middle um i don't think it exists here i think it does get a little too crazy in the chaotic and i don't think we need mm-hmm. people to, to you know we're not thinking like you know reduction is here or binary here where everyone has to go into one side no we need everyone everywhere but i don't think this is the most efficient place to have right. innovators um i think it's going to be more on this side Com, the complex side, and it does, and then this would eventually go into, um, into thoughts about complexity, and what does even complexity mean? Because just as mm-hmm. I mentioned, just as I, just as I indicated here earlier, me stop sharing here. Just as I mentioned earlier, you know what makes a test more easy or difficult? Because it could be different per person, uh, for each, for every, for and. You know, I would argue that you know you have creative capacity. You know what you're doing here on this podcast is is you're is finding ways to innovate in your own way. I'm doing that in my doctoral program, doing that at my work and stuff like that. So, are we innovators? I mean, to a certain degree and to a certain extent, yes. Um, but what does that mean? And it, it varies between individuals. So, to be able yeah. to explore that a bit more um, is something that I'm really interested in. So,
1: yeah. So let me try to, uh, kind of like summarize and, and boil down. It's, it sounds like what you're saying is like using the, uh, Kinefin framework, um, you're thinking about like, what's the best environment, um, to produce innovative thinking, um, using those kind of frameworks. Exactly. Um, so how, um, have you spent enough time Kind of observing students and um, you know enough time in the classroom to kind of like have an idea of like where you want to take it, or is that something that you're still like working out? Well, from a
0: for, here's the th- here, the funny thing, the difficult thing about education based research is, um, yeah, I mean you have just different groups of students every single time, and totally there are so many factors um, to have to. You know worry about right i mean you talk about research biases uh, but also every single student every single year every single semester is just a new it's just it's just a different beast and on top of that is i just need to get my job done <laughs> I yeah. need to make sure that you know I, I don't you know i don't treat my whole class as i don't treat cl- you know classes like lab rats right. um but you know my priority at least at biola was is um teaching it wasn't it wasn't necessarily research um, right. so, you know, there's, there is a balance between, between that. Um, but this is where collaboration comes in. Um, and, I, I currently outside of everything that I do outside of the, even the PhD program, um, I have collaborators in North Dakota and Minnesota who, where we get together on Wednesday mornings and we just have these discussions. Um, these are, this is. This education research group that I'm part of, we're all engineers, and uh, we were in there because we want to change the system. Um, and we use concepts like we 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 use concepts like the Kinnaman framework, the theories there, and other things as well um, to essentially find ways to change the classroom learning environment. Um, I had the privilege to be a part of and also teach a couple sections of cardiovascular engineering with this group, um, and it was so fun. I mean, uh, to be able to also bring along a couple biola students, actually to be part of that, and that classroom as as great as that class sounds, cardiovascular engineering, um, all of us, all the teaching the teaching team there. Um, what we were more interested in was actually how students performed in that class. Hmm. Um, because, you know, think of, did you ever take any biology classes? Uh, you took a lot of
1: Unfortunately chemistry. not. Yeah. You take a lot of chemistry not. or. Yeah. Chemistry.
0: Okay. So, I mean, if you take your, what, A-chem analytical chemistry, right. And there's so much content there. I mean, it's a, it's a five unit class. It's what's offered at Biola. And your labs are like six hours long and you're still, and you still can only cover like a small, you know, snippet. It's, I mean, you call it a survey of analytical chemistry, but at the same time, it's also um, a, it's still only a small portion of what a chem is. So in a class like that, like how would you think about innovation or design or Taking things out or doing things outside of the textbook, in that type of environment, I mean it's yeah. hard, right? Um, that's the same thing with this cardiovascular engineering course. Um, if you survey cardiovascular engineering courses across um, the across the U.S., I guarantee there's not going to be the same. It's not standardized. It's not like your general physics. It's not like your general chemistry course where um, you can kind of see lots of similarities between courses taught from one university to another i mean first off it's not even you know cardio engineering isn't even offered at a lot of universities right. um and and yeah like i said if you compare you know one course to another there's going to be differences lots of differences um which means it I don't want to say we could do whatever we want but we could do what we want yeah um, you know within you know as long as we're you know as long as we're true to um, you know we're true to our teaching and the content so what that means is in terms of like curating an an experience at the end that's what we think about you know the teaching in this class we're thinking about curating an experience for students um well what's the what's the motivation behind it it's gonna be the Kinevin framework it's going to be um Seeing is gonna be trying to it's it's us trying to identify when a student does this type of task in the class. Um, how can that be classified through our machine learning algorithm that we use in that class? Right. Um so so the way we do this is um we we use tokens. Um so so let's say you have um so our curriculum is was vetted by industry professional leaders, so that's how we developed the curriculum. It wasn't like from a textbook. I don't even think there's like a, like I said there's no standard cardiovascular engineering. textbook. You, you try to Google it, it's um, it's probably more. It, you probably see more course packs than than actual textbooks of these things being used. Um, but our curriculum was vetted, and you know we we received feedback from industry professionals, from large, co- from large companies, and we've essentially boiled it down to five key topics. And when we go through those five key topics, um, there's a series of, um, there's, students just need to show comprehension and learning about a certain topic. So the very first one is called the functional block diagram, which is basically a big circuit diagram of, of your cardiovascular system so pulmonary so pulmonary valves, tricuspid valves, and you you would shape these valves like diodes um and because it's only one way in, hopefully right in a healthy system right um so you know and, and it's funny because yeah, so a lot of students after when we teach you know that one lesson, um students you know come away with, hey, you know, and it's kind of morbid here or it's kind of weird here, but we can see like we now view the human body as like in like engineering terms from what we learned from analog circuits of all things. Right. Um, So it's like when you see even that right there, that's a nugget or we call it a token of learning because students were able to make a connection from the class to something that's completely outside of class. Now, sure. Granted, we kind of fed that to them, but now, but they are now responsible for actually taking that a bit further. So obviously you can't, parrot what we said you can't ditto everything that we're saying um, and but you have to find ways to basically scaffold your learning and we would basically and for every pillar so of the five you can kind of imagine it's kind of based a little bit off the command kind of frame of the four different domains um, you basically have to do four of them we don't get them we they don't have to do go up to the chaotic but yeah. you're basically they're essentially doing things to so that they can scaffold their learning. And then they would feed those tokens into our learning management system, which has a machine learning algorithm behind it. And it basically, it, it can, we're, we're still developing it, but, um, or we're still developing the more advanced things. Um, it's, already, it's up and running, people are already using it, um, and students would self-classify then it would go through a a verification, a validation, and then it would spit out whether or not it was essentially approved as, you know, you've reached, you were able to cover pillar one, step three, or whatever. Gotcha. Um, So now what that does is that allows, that provides us with data related to the education side. It's like, oh, you know, you think engineering class, you want to design something new, something innovative led to engineering. And yes people do in that class people have started companies from concepts from the class they've received patents they've plenty of journals and poster presentations from that class um but more importantly besides like getting that end goal of like hey you know i want to be able to my goal is to present at a conference or whatever um that's not necessarily you know the thing that we're excited about, what we're excited about is whether or not a student is actually able to get to that point and whether or not they can document that journey up to that point. Right. So, and that's the research side, right? It's understanding that journey because now it's, you get to the point where you reach the goal. Great. So what were the skills that you had to learn besides content? I mean, content's content, but or the skill that you had to learn to get you to that point? And how can you take that now to like your internship, to your workplace? And if we can somehow like put that in a bottle somehow and like feed that to like high school students, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, then you have like, you know, little innovators, um, you know, coming out of my school from other schools. And, um, you know, uh, there's, uh, we have someone from pretty high up on j from j- in j p l who's part of our advisory board and you know he he's also a professor as well and at the school that he's at um he's had you know he's mentioned to me several times that students who come out of our um our engineering institute that i'm at right that that i'm in right now um they're bored in college <laughs> hmm. um so It's kind of like, you know, um, it's kind of this whole thread thing that's happening, right? Thread, just like, you know, it's one thing to be a competitor, but it's nothing to like, you know, stick it to, you know, Twitter and whatnot. Not that we're doing that. That's not the goal. The goal is, you know, it's it's to show you that, like, you know, let's not discount the younger generation. Right. Um, just like, you know, you're, you just finished college. It's like, you don't, I'm sure you don't, you didn't want to be discounted as like, oh, you're young and naive and whatnot. No, know. Right. Um, you know, we believed in you, um, and we want to see the best in you and you're technically an adult, I guess, you know, cause you're 18, but, <laughs> um, but even like the younger kids in high school, um, you know, I believe that they still have, they have that potential and, you know, that's the change I would love to see. Uh, moving forward. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. I think to, to kind of use some of my experience to support that, I think at the, when I was hired as an engineer, I'm going to put air quotes on that. um, I didn't use any of the physics or chemistry that I learned. Um, What I did use was problem solving, um, uh, analytical mindset, um, you know, the ability to, um, observe a process and break it down into its parts. Um, those were the valuable skills. So when you're saying like, it's, you're trying to find the, like the nuggets of, um, or like have the students reflect on what skills they gained. I'm like, yeah, that's to me that, that seems spot on. Um, so I'd be curious, like what, what environment best um produces those skills um so like in your class like what are you doing um i know i know this is like part of the the process but um is it like um you know is it like oh they can't take tests at all it needs to be all projects or you know just things like that um what gets students in a innovative mindset where they can build these skills
0: yeah No, great question because it is multifaceted in many ways. Um, Let me start with what are some of the barriers first, and then we'll talk about like, you know, some of these other things, right? Let's say, let's say you take a, let's say you take one of my classes. That's, um, you know, we call it innovation-based learning. So you probably heard of project-based learning, um, problem-based learning. Um, So we, So my research team and my research group and I were were trying to really just uh, push forward with innovation-based learning. And let's say you take one of my classes that was framed as innovation-based learning. Um, I, uh, I, when I taught physics, it was not innovation-based learning, but when I teach cardiovascular engineering it's innovation-based learning. Um, so that's just one class. Then you hop over with like five other classes <laughs> that may not implement the same pedagogy or the same assessments or the same outcomes. And then what happens is that puts up even more barriers because if anything, I look like the weird one, right? Mm. I'm the one not, I'm the one not following in line. I'm, I'm the maverick here, right? So yeah. Um, so that's one of the barriers is that um, when there isn't necessarily buy-in from, let's say, a larger entity, a department, a program, a university, um, not that they don't want that, right? They, you know, they would love to see, you know, Brayden Incorporated, right? <laughs> um, they would love to see that. But um, it it makes it harder for you as a student because then it's like you're in one class i teach things one way and then it's not consistent with everything else so then what happens is um a student who is in that environment they um they tend to develop you know these skills that you're talking about you know (laughs) in some universities survival skills right (laughs) they learn to survive and then what ends up happening is that ends up being placed in my class, even though we tell them like from the get go, you're going to get an A in the class, but they still have this like survival grit mentality that is great to a certain extent, but it's not like what we're looking for. And right. uh, if anything, it actually hinders some things. But um, hmm. so I think that's one thing that a lot of, you know, when when we do when I do this research and whatnot, that's one thing that we um, we have to be aware of is that sure let's say in one of these classes at another university there's 100 students and we send out surveys and we do we, you know, we do research on these students um we every single student is different a student who's only taking 12 units is going to be very different than a student who's taking 18 a student not in tory honors is going to be very different than a student who you know who's taking other classes and, and um it's that's a that's a that's a factor that's a variable that we can't necessarily control um but at the same time we know that that's that's definitely something that affects and then you know obviously as I mentioned earlier it's gonna be you know buy in from colleagues and everything too now what does that mean so how do we kind of work around that um it is an education system um you know can you start a company in one semester um it's hard but <laughs> <laughs> um uh, but it, it has happened and um mm-hmm. but you know, there there's time, right? Um we want you to be innovative. And this is the one and only class in this university that does it, and you only have s- four months to do it. <laughs> yeah. Um so even that too, you know, it it, it, it there's some students who kind of caught the bug and in a good way and they kept going. And um did you know Jenna who's yeah. Yeah. So Jenna, she was, so she was part of the cardiovascular course and she did um, afterwards she did like four more semesters of directed research, which was kind of, you know, we kind of ran it in that way too. And yeah. um, she presented at several big key places and even had like a prototype even for her, um, her DVT analysis device. So Um. So it's it's pretty crazy to see kind of what she's been doing. And now, granted, sure, you know, some may argue, you, well, you have two years to do that. Um, yeah, I mean, and it's only one class, right? She's taking a million other classes. and, right. and But it, but actually, if you ask her, um, sure, she maybe be taking a million other classes, but were those million other classes required? No, she took a bunch of biology classes and everything. And um, the reason why she took it is because she fell in love with biomedical engineering. And she fell yeah. in love, um, you know, with this stuff because she was part of my very first cardiovascular engineering course that kind of kickstarted everything. And, um, you know, we're looking to interview her and interview her in our podcast, but um, we want to know why, <laughs> you know, when she started moving into the research side and everything um, outside of the class, we stopped collecting data from her. Otherwise, we'd have to fire up another IRB and get another research protocol in and just for one student. Yeah. And there's like crazy bias yeah. there and it doesn't work, right? But yeah. um uh but there's something about it where she was just on fire and she couldn't stop. Like we couldn't stop her, you know? Um so what was that? Because I want to bottle that. Like I said earlier, I want to feed it to my high school students somehow. Right, totally. <laughs> um so uh so yeah, I mean I don't know if that answers your question, but um that's you know, when it that's kind of what Um, that's the motivation behind it is going to be trying to figure out what those things are. Um, what are the barriers and, but also what are the floodgates as well? That's going to allow that free flowing thought to kind of come, come through. So totally.
1: Yeah. I, I, I love that. Um, and, and I can see, like, I, I, you know, I don't know Jenna well, but I can see that um, even from a distance. So, um, I can see how that would be a, you know, a helpful example. Um, and now I'm thinking about how I should get her on my podcast too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so, but I understand like, okay, yeah, the, the research is still ongoing. Um, so I won't push on you too hard. Um, there, I'd like to also go kind of into the slightly more philosophical or big picture level. Um, so why is creativity particularly important for engineers? Um, and I think we spoke last week a little bit about like divergent thinking. Um, Mm. so why is it important for engineers to be able to think, um, differently as opposed to Convergent thinking, where they're, you know, you're taught a certain way of doing things um, and you follow that way. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you don't
0: want to press too hard on the research, but that is part of the research too, right? Um, <laughs> right. <personally, laughs> Sorry. I'm personally <laughs> trying to identify. Well, it's a good thing. I mean, this is, it's all stuff yeah. that I, um, yeah, that I, I read all the time. And, you know, the things that I'm trying to identify more in students is, you know, the differences between conversion versus divergent um, tasks. Thinking activities, etc. Um, so when, so how do we classify something as convergent? How do we classify something as divergent? What's the what? What's the line that's um, that's dividing them? And that comes down to also creativity as well. Um, so creativity, um, yeah, I mean, we usually associate creativity with the divergent uh, type of thinking there. And um, creativity, I mean. <laughs> The very first thing I always tell intro engineering students, whenever, you know, whenever I do teach the classes, you have to think of engineering, not as not like physics or not like math. I mean, you have to like physics and like math, but you can't, you can't couple them in those same categories. If anything, engineering is probably more like art and design kind of that camp more so than physics and math and chemistry and biology I totally agree um, yeah. i mean would you say would you say that art people have to be creative would you have to say musicians have to be creative i mean i think it's a very simple yes and if engineers are if we if we can view engineers as people who kind of operate in that way just from a mindset standpoint um, I think that's the divide I think that's where the creativity comes in, right? And that's also the, the line that divides you know physics or even applied physics to engineering, I would say. Because um, now we're looking at because now when we ident- when we, when we now throw the word creativity out, um, we're looking at so many different things. Um, for example, um, you know we think of songwriters and we think of artists. Um, who you know who are designing who are creating these pieces and you have the engineers who are who are designing these things on on um, you know works and AutoCAD and whatnot and now we're at a point where I mean you threw in the word philosophical is you know we can't move away from even the you know this concept of like artificial intelligence and whatnot right, totally um, right. with uh, AI you know writing songs and you know, you have the, the pictures, <laughs> the picture generators yeah. thing. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, but the main thing, the thing about creativity is um, we need to find ways to continuously get aspiring and up-and-coming engineers in that space of creating or being creative, even to the point where it's like it can be as simple as and design the next generation backpack and which is, which is actually one of the activities I did in in my engineering class. I'm I'm, I'm a, I'm a big backpack person. Um, and, um, you know, that's, I guess that's my version of like shoes or whatever. Um, I I own a lot of backpacks and like tech backpacks. And that's just because I just love them. Um, and they're not, and they're all different in one shape, one way, shape or form. There isn't, I don't have the perfect backpack. Um, every backpack I own has a different function, different versus a different feature, different whatever. So I propose it to the class, like, okay, we'll design the the, design, a a brand new, a brand new backpack. And, you know, if I'm an investor and, you know, show me that this is like the next, the hottest thing, but don't look at it from just a design perspective and, you know, the color scheme or whatever. But also look at it from like a human factor side to it, right? An ergonomic right. side. So now we're looking at systems engineering and and integrated design and all that stuff. And um, so in many in many scenarios, and even in my undergraduate studies, and you know, um, there's just been so many times where it was where a lot of the tasks that I were do that a lot of tasks that I had to do were very were just they were just left in like this cognitive domain where I just had to. Regurgitate. Um, I was walking on eggshells. If I didn't say the right thing, or if I didn't make the right connections, which is the same thing as saying the right thing, um, I would lose points, and those points would lead towards me questioning my <laughs> kind of go spiral. Right? You, you question your validity. You question your calling. You question your uh, whether or not you're good enough. You're up to snuff. And then what yeah. hurts, you know, for some students, unfortunately as well, there's a point where the administration comes in and they have to kick you out of the major too, right? If your GPA is too low for a certain period of time. So, so, but that, but as you said, um, a lot of the things that you're doing, even in your workplace in industry is not, you know, were you able to get the answer in the back of the book,
1: um, and, well, and yeah, and go ahead. the reality is most of the time there isn't an answer in the back of the book. Mm-hmm. It's not like, Oh, you got it right. It's like, there are multiple, there are multiple answers you could give and hopefully one of them will help us. <laughs>
0: exactly. And we need to learn how to live in tolerances. We need to learn to live in decimals. Um, Very classic example is, you know, let's say you look at Ohm's law, right? A lot of the, a lot of times we just stick 12 volts and then we just swap around the resistors and well, what's the current? Okay, well, it's a very easy linear you know, linear relationship there. And you can, you know, a third grader could probably figure that out, but it's like, but then that's the thing. It's like, we've been trained so much to like, look at whole numbers, that's what we expect when we go out to the workplace it's like no <laughs> you have yeah, yeah. to you have to learn to live in decimals you have to learn to live in microns and mac- and big numbers and um and the tolerance levels of like 10 20% and you have to learn how to like you have to learn how to soften that up a little bit more and more And you, a lot of times, you can't do that from just looking at numbers. You have to look at graphs, right? That's why Mm -hmm. there's a there's a big there's a difference between being able to solve for a number, which you know I taught eighty percent math this past year, and that's what we did a lot of times. It's one thing to solve to be able to solve for a number, but it's also to like, okay, so what? How do we like make this more meaningful? Well, let's plot it and see that this harmonic motion that's happening. Well, if it's going out of control and it's not dampened enough, well, maybe we have to like fix something so that, you know, there's not too much resonance and we have a nice smooth breaking pattern or, um, so we reduce, reduce the amount of vibrations that are happening in dynamic motion and stuff like that. These are, um, a lot of students, they can't make that connection there because a lot yeah. of times w- when students are what students are trained to do is they're trained to okay, well, I know how to take an integral. Um, I know that the integral is you know the area under the curve. Well, I, I guess I could do a differential equation. Um, I mean, nowadays it's like you have so much software that does that for you. But more importantly, it's can you still and can you interpret it? Now, is that to say like oh, you know, we? Sh- it's not to say that we we sh- we shouldn't learn math. No, we should. We need to learn math so we know how to. Um make adjustments as needed, right? right Reducing damping factors and stuff like that is not just like swapping out the brake i mean okay, maybe swap out the brake pads, but someone designed the brake pads, right? <laughs> <laughs> and someone designed the brake system and everything, and someone had to look at the someone had to know how to interpret the math and the graphs and everything to make sure that cars are safe and and that vibration you know isn't going to mess things up so
1: Yeah. So kind of to summarize again, um, it, it sounds like real world, real world problems are complex and don't have a single right answer, um, Mm -hmm. most of the time. Mm -hmm. And so creative thinking, divergent thinking is important because, um, it puts students in a, um, kind of headspace where they're solving, um, more real world problems than they are like just trying to repeat uh correct information
0: yeah i mean i I recently just talked about diabetes and um you know the the first test of diabetes was (laughs) someone essentially was tasting urine right (laughs) i mean that was Mm. the first like that was like the very first test for um uh, for diabetes and whatnot and then now we're at a point where we have these like you know, these continuous glucose monitor devices, you know, the patch that you have there yeah. and you know, it's connected to a pack and then you have your phone to like, you know, um, you could uh, it's all smart now or whatever. Um, but that's still not like solved. Right. Um, even to this day, people are still pricking their fingers. Um, even for so long, we've known about diabetes for so many decades um, yet. We still haven't found that completely non-invasive solution yet. And you have a lot of smart people working in this field, right? I mean, you mm-hmm. get grants all the time for this. You can, um, you know, there are a bunch of companies. Uh, you know, the chief scientist at um, Tandem Diabetes, you know, taught at Biola for a little bit, right? You know, so he's, you know, he's, um, you know, he's in that space. And then you have the the giant Medtronics who's also in that space too and other companies. But, um, but that's, I mean, that's something weird to think about, right? It's like, we've known about diabetes for so long but we still have yet to have some sort of non-invasive solution. I mean, I, I just recently just got LASIK a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. It's like crazy. Right? <laughs> um, I, but yeah, I mean, in terms of like medical technology, and that's the thing I love about biomedical engineers because there are so many unsolved things, so many unsolved problems. And if you sit there and you just let people think, and every generation of students are going to think about something different. You know, I'm going to focus on one thing. You can focus on another thing. The generation you know ahead of you is going to uh, ahead of you is going to think about something else. And um, it's not about it's not necessarily about the content, right? Like you're saying, it's all about have, it's all about developing that it's it's about being you know I guess in crude layman terms, it's being comfortable in, in the messiness of things it's being comfortable right. in complexity. Well, there's a book title right there, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, being comfortable in complexity—that's um, really the big thing that uh, we are trying to get students to do. It, it, you know, again, if, you, if people go back to that that top left domain, um, complex. Um, That's where, you know, emergent practices come out where students are now starting to um, take the things that they're already familiar with. And they're actually now like, um, they're really, they're really doing something new with that skill set somehow. Because a lot of times, even with complexity and with creativity as well, creativity doesn't necessarily, or innovation doesn't necessarily mean you have to think of like the brand spanking new thing. Um, because a lot of technology nowadays, it's, there was some concept from somewhere and another concept from another place and somehow it was just combined. I mean, this, I mean, I don't mean to use this as a very, you know, it's a very crude analogy or illustration here, but you know, this, when NVIDIA kind of started blowing up this past couple of weeks and then AMD kind of came back and said, oh, you know, we're now implementing AI and stuff like that. Well, it's not that AI was new I mean it's been around for a long time actually it's just more recently the concept of making AI free (laughs) that was the thing you know Um, right so sometimes complexity and creativity is not about brands making new it's combinatory or combination effect so if you are able to practice that and you learn how to combine things more and more that's going to only help with your creativity. It's going to help develop that skill set a bit more. And then that's where something new can actually come out of nowhere.
1: Um, yeah. So, um, that you're have reminded me of a a quote from, um, the black Swan by Nassim Taleb. I don't know if you've, you're familiar. Um, but the, the quote is, um, the strategy for discoverers and entrepreneurs is to rely less on top-down planning and focus on maximum tinkering and recognizing opportunities when they present themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I've been reflecting on that a lot lately. Um, but the idea of maximum tinkering, I think that's kind of what you're touching on It's like, it doesn't Mm -hmm. mean you have to design and create something entirely new. Uh, it may be that something already exists that, um, you can tinker with. Um, and and who knows what can happen uh, exactly yeah
0: we're at a stage in technology where a lot of things exist now so now you know what what does it i mean right now what's the hot thing right now is now trying to bundle ai with everything <laughs> right Totally. Um, so you know one thing that we're trying to do in our research group is actually develop like pocket professor right now uh where we're actually using. Um, We're using actually a visual model too, so that you have my (laughs) my one of my research uh, colleagues who um, he, you know, he's emeritus and everything, but you know, somehow the AI would get him to talk to a student if you know when they submit an assignment or submit something, they submit a token. If there was something wrong with the concept they presented, then it's able to pick that up and then do that and then Hmm. actually give you a mini two minute lecture or something to reinforce what's happening i mean that's what khan academy is doing if you if you right. watch Saul khan's um, uh, ted talk that he did recently and um you know it's it's gone to the point where there's a little bit of you know conversation that's happening right with the ai and so you can try to ask it hey give me the answer and then they'll just say well I can't do that, but let's think about, you know, first steps, like what should you be looking at first? And then they'll say something wrong in the middle of that process. And then it would somehow, it would be able to catch that somehow in the middle of that process. And then tell them, well, think about order of operations. You know, you should, can, you should think about you know, what happens if you have a parentheses in your factoring, you know, versus, you know, and an exponential or something. Yeah. So, um, or an exponent, sorry. And um, so that's like the hot thing now is now incorporating AI um, into just everything now.
1: So. So um, I want to um, touch on um, the idea of exponential growth in technology. And I think this, it, it definitely applies certainly to to AI, right? We've kind yeah. of seen this like boom of like, uh you know open ai just tweaks their like their large language model a little bit and it just like completely blows up um not because it didn't exist before but they just changed um something about the programming um so um are you familiar with uh ray kurzweil at all director mm-hmm. of engineering at google okay um so i read a Singular. little bit of his <laughs> yeah yeah his book um singularity is near Mm -hmm. how uh what how technology Mm -hmm. transcends biology i think as the title um so maybe i think uh the most interesting way to me um to kind of handle this topic is like put um christian faith uh that application on pause um and come back to it at the end but like how what is your reaction to that idea? Um, that the kind of idea of exponential growth, uh, in terms of technology and how does that relate to kind of what we see with the AI with, um, phone, social media, um, all those kinds of newer, um, technologies.
0: Sure. So, <clears throat> yeah, so I guess the singularity, uh, from my understanding of it is it's going to be like that point, right? Is it 2045 or something? Um, yeah i don't i'm not
1: sure what the exact prediction is um
0: or 20 he said he mentioned something about 2030 or 2029 or something as well i'm getting yeah i mean i should be (laughs) i should be more constant of those things but um (laughs) um but essentially singularity um as he says it is um more related to like transhumanism where we are looking at um at the point where technology um i guess supersedes the human but in a sense where you know it it always comes back to the example of to the point where we cannot distinguish technology and from like a conversational side of things like we wouldn't be able to distinguish technology from human or we wouldn't be able. so um you know so I don't know if there's really a good like model out there, I guess. Um, I mean, everyone thinks about Terminator and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, I mean, you could tell that the guy's kind of weird. Right. So, you know, there's a little bit of that, right. um, but um, so, okay. So, uh, it, so when it comes to the idea of, you know, this transhumanism, this, the, and the singularity and this point of, okay, well, what's the issue here is technology going to take over all of us right now i think the it comes back to even some questions that i even you know as i listen to him ray i'm sorry i haven't read his books but i've listened to some podcasts that he's been a a host uh, he's been a guest on and um but but a lot of the things that i'm hearing a lot is just why what what is the end goal, or like, what is what is it that we are actually afraid of? And mm. the thing that we are afraid of, is, and thus the conversation is the idea that these machines, these computers, these robots are going to um, not necessary. Honestly, I don't think it's not necessary. I don't think it's necessarily them going to like act like us, or they can speak like us. I think at the end of the day, it's, I think where the, where the fear begins is, um, they are doing the everyday tasks. That's making us less and less, the more and more obsolete. Right. I think it starts there. And the idea there is understanding, well, if that's, you know, that's currently what AI and a lot of these things are doing, right. You, um, open um you know open ai or chat gpt or whatever the, the, the scare that a lot of people are, were having and again this comes in the teacher teaching world too is that um a lot of the things what it's really good at is essentially scraping information it can do that so quickly
1: right. um
0: a lot faster than us um but at the same time, it can't distinguish some things like, you know, I heard an example where, you know, if, if, you, if you tell this, some algorithm that, you know, this, um, this elephant has 10 feet, it wouldn't, and you ask them how many feet does the elephant have, it wouldn't be able to know that it has 10 feet even though you've explicitly said, because it focuses so, so much on the word elephant. So elephant has uh-huh. that fork, right? Um, and I think that comes down to our, you know, from, from the technology side, it comes, it boils down to, well, when it, when this algorithm is able to complete a task, completing a task, what's the opposite of completing tasks? It's not completing a task. So it comes down to this binary type of understanding of, life so hmm. if philosophically if we think about life as just a series of tens of thousands of binary decisions that we make yes and no's then yes we're doomed <laughs> because this because this ai is able to i mean i wouldn't say that it's able to make the decisions for you but it's able to make a decision based off of how it's trained and everything right um now when it, Now, trying to not talk about like the doomsday stuff, <laughs> right? Uh, but, <laughs> but when we talk about even, when we even look at like neuroscience and neurobiology too, I mean, this is the argument that, that people make is that, well, you know, look at us, our brains and stuff. It's a bunch of neurons flying around that's being fired off, whatnot. An um, electrical engineer will, <laughs> so this is where it, it, I had a professor who actually, um, who, who, back in undergrad where his research was to design basically a prosthetic spine and essentially, mm. well, why? Because that's essentially the central core of where like these neurons are going to be firing. And then, and, and then what's the, what is he looking at when he, when he sees the connection from the brain and it travels from the spine, it leads to motor control. Right. So, at the, so it's still a very, so even as complex and as crazy of a project as it was, you could still boil that down to a one and a zero. Did the arm move or did the arm not? Did the elbow right. rotate? Did it rotate not? Did it rotate did the elbow rotate one and zero at a you know in the x, y z direction? that's three more ones and zeros, right? And then you have all your fingers and everything too, right? And from an electrical engineering standpoint, if you think of it from a circuitry side, well yeah it's just a bunch of logics that are happening and i can program code that it's just a bunch of wires that are flying through as long as i don't have feedback then i'm good um you an understanding of that and you connect it with the limitation of ai and what is it actually taking over i think it comes down to and this, and this is where it gonna, where it would speak to kind of the concerns is that um it boils down to what's actually being lost when we compare ourselves to the AI and the challenge I've, I've had with teachers because I, because, you know, that's a conversation that we had. And I obviously was one of the people who they had asked to kind of, you know, comment, to give comments and thoughts about this, especially when it comes to, people in the history department people in the english department and the challenge i had for them was um you know when it comes to these what you do in the classroom um if the level of what you're doing if and again go back to the cannevan framework right the four domains if all you're doing in the class to get an a is everything in the bottom left or it's just all just clear right so you're so you're talking about like look as long as i answer like When was the, when, you know, when was World War II or whatever, right? If you can answer that and get around the multiple choice question, then you get an A in the class. Well, you know, yeah, I mean, Google search or, I mean, not even an A, I just use Google search or, but, you know, an AI can be able to tell, can give that to you in much quicker than a student taking the exam, given all the stress and anxiety that they're going through while, you know, filling out that, filling out the exam page. So what does that mean for us as we prepare and think about like the next generation? Well, this is where I, as an educator, this is where I advocate for things like creative, you know, putting more opportunities of creating divergent thinking, because that's the thing that this algorithm can't do because it's trained based off of data that you've already fed it. So its limitation is really just for, you know, there's a time limitation, so it only knows up to, you know, 2021 or whatever. Um, but what it can't do is it can't, it can't be creative, it can't be innovative. Now, what does that mean to even be creative, right? It goes back to kind of what we were talking about. Well, um, you know, there's an example we did live demo with teachers where someone had said, hey, write me a lesson plan for Shakespeare Sonnet 19. And I was able to write like a five-page lesson plan in like, I don't know. 30 seconds, whatever. Right. Um and what the teacher said was, "Look, that's being creative." And I said, "Wait a minute. What do you mean by that's being creative?" Because a lot of the questions first off when you read it as a teacher, so you're now evaluating the AI here, okay? When you now see that and you ask, and you ask yourself, "Okay, are the are any of these questions like Curveball to you, did they just come out of nowhere? Well, first off, you got to check if they're correct first, and it was. But in terms of like drafting the kind of question, did they really do anything different that you couldn't do? Hmm. Now, what they were now, what the AI was good at was again, it's good at scraping information. So, if if someone were to post on, I don't know, Chegg, like a teacher's lessons or teacher's notes or whatever. And it happened to have that information because it was trained with that information. Well, it can draw from that giant database and compile together an appropriate lesson plan for an appropriate age group regarding Shakespeare Sonnet, sonnet number 19 or some whatever. And that's the thing that we suck at as humans is we can only <laughs> we can only have so much mental capacity in terms of knowing where to look, but also what's being held in our noggin up here as well. Um, and that's where we're going to get beat is that if we focus and if our identity is set on all these bottom right domain tasks, and that's like what, and that's the thing that leads to success. That's the thing that's identifying who I am and my worth and my value to this world. Then we're, are going to get beat by the AI because the AI basically does everything in that domain even better than you. Right. But what can't the ai do well it can't solve the problem of diabetes right i try to ask you you know what's a can you give me a non-invasive solution to solving diabetes no you know that's where we are still needed and i think that's where the line that's to me at least where i see the line drawn um does that mean i am advocating for or against no um i I think, you know, I'm teaching a class on artificial intelligence next year, next school year, so in a few weeks here. So it's not, so, you know, I'm not going to teach them to not use it, <laughs> right? Right. Um, that's like, you know, one day lesson and you're done for the semester. No, it's like, no, I'm actually going to be teaching them how to develop algorithms and all this stuff. And, you know, does that mean that we should just throw it all away? N- no, uh, but what does it mean in terms of like, Accepting what, accepting this, and what how it's integrated into our lives, I think that's kind of what we need to focus on is when it comes to how you know what is being lost here, and how much of your personal identity have you put in those things that are getting lost. I think when we do a reflection of that, just personal self-reflection of that, I think that will help better help us better understand um, how this ai phenomenon would have an effect on our lives yeah um, we'll get to the point where you'll have i mean you know i guess the concept of like transhumanism you know uh, pulling away from like the philosophical term but like you know i think ai will get to the point where you can have something where it's almost indistinguishable i mean we see that in you know there i, I see something like youtube videos and you know I'm trying to develop we're yeah. trying to develop a pocket professor where it's my you know, it's my um it's my research colleague. He he doesn't even he doesn't even pre-record the video. It's just the research colleague and it's the algorithm that's actually moving his mouth, putting natural motion to it.
1: Um it's crazy, right? Yeah. So Yeah. Um so it what I'm kind of seeing is like there's this tension, right, between yes, there does seem to be this exponential growth, maybe of like as you get better and better tools, it makes it easier to make more tools. And, you know, um, it continues to press, but at the same time, you have hard limitations on what the tools are able to do. Um, and that is, that causes plateaus. Um, so it's not a clean exponential curve, um, because, um, with each technological advancement made, there's a, a, typically a hard limit that's met as well. Um, so now I'll kind of open the door to like, as a Christian, what are we to think about, um, kind of all these new developments? Um, and what, what is our response to the person who's, you know, banking on Neuralink to fix all (laughs) their problems and that kind of thing?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, there's still a lot of unspoken, unanswered things that are out there, right? Um, you know, it's interesting because even though, even, you know, Ray himself says that, you know, this concept of singularity, you can't connect, you can't even connect it with faith, right? And, mm-hmm. um, you know, you know, we have to just look at the science. Okay, you know, right. sure. Right. But at the at the same time, science still can't explain things like emotion, Right. Mm-hmm. Science still can't, um it still can't, ex- you know, it's it still can't explain things like, well, if you hold your spouse's hand for, you know, X amount of time, you know, it's supposed to, it helps with like your relationship grow and develop more and more, right? I mean, I'm talking about these are just simple things, right? And I mean, not even throwing any Christianese in there. Right. Just, they're just even even in the domain of science, right, or psychology, if um, you know, whatever people's perspective is on psychology and whatnot. I mean, even just look at our example of neurons, right? We are someone can say that we're just nothing but a bunch of neurons flying around in our brain that's causing me to move my hands and causing us to talk and whatnot. Um, well, can you qualify that? I mean, we can quantify it, right? Because we right. have monitors, we have voltmeters and <laughs> whatever to, right. be able to quantify it. But can you qualify it? Um, how does the combination of all these neurons flying in a certain way um, bring about a certain emotion in us? Right? And that emotion is not the same for all of us either, right? Um, right. We're all made differently. Um, so starting with that limitation of there is a limit in terms of even like how science can even interpret the and we're not even talking about the physics and these other, you know, these other, you know, these other things that are out there, but even for science, there's a limitation. And then there's, um, so therefore even, even that concept of like, okay, we can only focus on the science. I think that kind of breaks down on itself. Hmm. So then when it comes to the Christian faith, now the question is, well, well, I mean, let me be crude. What does the Christian faith even have to do with this, right? Um, right. Because you know, as as someone who you know, I became a Christian in college, so I didn't grow up going to VBS and all these other things. Um, right. I served at my church's VBS to get the VBS experience. <laughs> That's <laughs> what <you> happened. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, more importantly, it's um, when it comes to the Christian faith now and how it. And what that says about, you know, these concerns we have, um, you know, we can look at Ecclesiastes and think about how at the end of the day, it's like, it's meaningless. So mm-hmm. even so, it doesn't end there. That's the thing. <laughs> but, but when it comes to like the meaningless of things, it's more like we can gain all this knowledge. We can gain all these super AI powers and these common, these combinatorial effects is able to do. We can even gain all this creativity that we've developed over time. Um, but it's all for not if at the end of the day for ourselves personally, if there really, if there isn't like a compass behind that, otherwise it's just a sad reality. I mean, that's really what it is. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think at the end of the day, that's kind of where that where the Christian faith comes in. I don't – I mean, I don't want to be controversial here either. I, I don't necessarily <laughs> see a strong – because the way I see this AI is I really just see it as like another piece of technology, right? It's like the iPhone. Right. I, sure, yes, there are effects that the iPhone does, good and bad, for an individual. So, you know, it's good for me because I can – talk to people. We can re- reconnect it through text message and stuff like that, but it can right. also be a time sink for a lot of these teenagers that I see in mm-hmm. and, and whatnot. Um, so every technology has the potential for being good or evil. It really comes down to the individual who actually harnesses it. And that's mm. where the Christian faith comes in is going to be. Well, that individual who has harnessed the technology, if it comes to the point where the AI does become un- uncontrollable, is someone willing to pull the plug on it? right Um, so I mean it may come down to an ethical type of like consideration and you know then that falls into the realm of Christian ethics and what does it even mean and stuff like that right but at the end of the day you know the Christian in terms of how the Christian faith is integrated into this um, I see it as uh, it comes down to the individual and where their compass kind of comes into
1: Um,
0: so I the technology is always going to be there um, and it's, and you know, we're going to use it. Um, I mean, I, I just downloaded this app called Luther. Um, I don't know if you've seen it. it's like the AI Bible app. Okay.
1: Like, check it out. Um,
0: yeah. I mean, I, I just know. saw it. I have, I have been, I haven't been able to go through it and like, cause the one thing I'm trying to figure out is okay, well, I mean, we're talking about combining things, right. <laughs> As innovation. Right. So this guy took like the ESV Bible or uh, four different translations and coupled it with some sort of AI to have a better Bible reading experience. And to me, you know, I see things, I see AI and stuff like that, um, really being helpful, for example, for those with disabilities, um, Hmm. to be able to summarize, to be able to read out, to be able to color change, uh, for those who are visually impaired. Um, I see it, so when you see stuff like that, it's like, well, oh, that's a good thing. And then it's like Terminator, that's well, a bad thing, right?
1: Yeah. So, <laughs> so
0: who? So what is it? So what's? So what is the, like that? Like dependent variable that's in between there, right? right? It's going to be come down to the individual person. And this is where you know Christians. I mean, if anything, Christians sh- need to be in christians need to be in these places in engineering companies in in software companies um and sure it may run deep because it's just a lot of smart people and it might be scary but um we need believers in those places so that they can have influence when it comes to things like decision making and whatnot um, right. I tell students all the time, and, um, and and I mean maybe too early for high school students, but I tell them all the time, you you all need to go get your doctorates, because, hmm. you know, my wife has her doctorate, so um, the running joke that my colleagues, my academic colleagues, always say, oh, it's Mister and Doctoring. Hurts <laughs>
1: <First, laughs> my pride a little bit, but
0: soon it yeah. will be Doctor and Doctor. Hopefully. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but um you know, when my wife got her doctorate in something that she doesn't use, nor was she necessarily using it while she was getting it as well. You know, her doctor, like an education, she's working in finance. And the thing is, it's like, having that doctor, and again, I'm not trying to get this all emotional, you know, it's not going to rely on emotion and cultural, social, whatever. But, you know, having that doctor really Opens the door in many ways, and it kind of sucks that it has to be like that as well, because it's kind of a long yeah. <laughs> uphill battle. But in today's society, like it actually speaks volumes, um, and it can actually put you in a position where you can have that voice um, to you know in those spaces. Um, right. So yeah, I mean, I don't know if that really answers the question in terms of how you know, well, you know, how does how does AI and Christian faith, how are they integrated? I know that's kind of a big Biola thing is integration of faith. And right. But I think at the end of the day, it does come down to, um, you know, that it's that liminal space, right? It's like, where does, where, where can all the error happen? I mean, we write in our lab reports all the time, right? It's human error. (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah,
1: totally. It's (laughs) like 90% of the error.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And that's the thing that's going to happen. Right. And as funny as it yeah. is, as we're saying it now, well, it, you know, if something were to go wrong, I won't, I don't think we can blame on the AI. I think we can blame on the humans. Right. So mm-hmm. who was the person yeah. who made that decision? Who was the person who signed off on it? Who was the person who um, didn't, you know, pull the plug, who didn't speak up, who didn't. And those are the things that, um, I think that's where the Christian faith comes in is we we need to capture the person, the individual, like at that space and encouraging them, I mean, developing, um, church spaces and environments that are encouraging. Um, it's not, um, divisive or it's not, Oh, you have to do this things in one in this certain way and whatnot, but how do we create communities and environments that are actually, that are encouraging, um, that we're not shooting people down in our classes as teachers, um, but that everyone has value. Um, uh, and sometimes you don't want to admit it. especially I'm teaching a bunch of juniors and whatnot. But um, hmm. you know, it's hard for me to tell them. You know, for you guys, it's easy. You know, you guys in college, you guys are adults, and you know, I I see it already. I see the fire. But a junior in high school, oof, it's a little more difficult. But <laughs> I, but but it's something I'm learning. I'm growing. Right. I don't have kids, so you know, I'm learning how to deal with teenagers. I guess. Um, but I tell them like, look, you know, I think you have, you know, I believe in you. I know you want, you may want to be a dance major and you can't see the connection between linear algebra and dance major. Even though I showed you, you know, how <laughs> dance formations work at the Super Bowl and everything. And, you know, and you just brush me off like that. You still have value in this world, you know? Yeah. And I say it from the bottom of my, I'm not just saying, cause that's my job. It's like, you know, I, I, I do mean it. And, um, I'm growing in that way. I'm not I'm not a perfect person. I'm not a perfect teacher. Um, so yeah, being in this environment, this high school environment has been really humbling, especially. So totally. but how do we create those spaces, right? And again, we create yeah. those spaces from a Christian worldview, a Christian perspective that is um acting in grace, right? So
1: yeah, totally. And um, I, I like that you touched on Ecclesiastes um, and kind of the thought that, um, you know, a tool is just a tool um, and not more than that. And so the wielder of the tool matters just as much as the, the tool itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to wrap us up here um, with a quote from C.S. Lewis, um, Abolition of Man. Beautiful. Um, and then, yeah, if you have, if you want to respond to that, um, you can, and we'll wrap it up, but, um, it's from the very end of abolition of man. Um, the quote reads, um, there is something which unites magic and applied science while separating both from the quote wisdom of earlier ages for the wise man of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality and the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. For magic and applied science alike, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men. The solution is a technique, and both in the practice of this technique are ready to do things hitherto regarded as disgusting and impious, such as digging up and mutilating the dead. Um, and then he goes on to say, um, no doubt those who really founded modern science were usually those whose love of truth exceeded their love of power. Um, so, uh, maybe I'll I'll just give you a second, like, uh, do you have any thoughts about that? Um, and the relationship kind of like, or the, the difference between the love of truth, um, and the love of power. Um, and we'll kind of wrap it up from there. I think I lost you. Um, not oh, sure. How about now? Yeah, now I can okay. like, you're quiet, but I can hear you.
0: Okay. Um sorry about that.
1: Um No, you're good. So um the
0: concept of truth, pursuit of truth versus pursuit of power. Um someone's always gonna be better than you. I mean let's be real right in something. So would you say the top tech folks that are out there, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, like are they the best at what they do? And what does it even mean? Like, what are they (laughs) can't even categorize them. Right. Uh, Right. Visionaries or whatever. Right. So, but they also have blind spots too. Right. And I think that's the, the, that's the thing about, Abolition man is a great text, but um, yeah, I mean the the pursuit of truth and having that motivation behind that, as opposed to power, is what's going to. um, I mean, there's a lot of wisdom in that you've as you've cited as well, um, because when you are seeking truth, I mean, there's an assumption that you as an individual have that says that truth does exist right Hmm. um and what that tells you is well it's going to converge somewhere but then the pursuit of power i mean even that power itself i mean what does that mean does that mean a throne does it mean c c-suite um executive suite or whatever is it the corner office (laughs) is it having a pen or whatever um there's always going to be someone who's better than you that's out there. And I, I don't, I don't say that as a means of like, Oh, you know, shoot everyone down and whatnot. No, it's um, yeah. It, you know, again, it comes down to just the mindset behind that. Uh, even when you, it's, and, and I like that it's um, and then, you know, that's one of the things that kind of drew me actually to Christian faith is actually, um, my, the very first sermon that I listened to, um, was, you know, I, I wasn't a believer. Um, I went to this church because it was the closest one to campus and the, the preacher that day, pastor Sam Shin, who also was the one who baptized me as well. He, um, I, I, I don't remember what the message was on, but what I remember was he used a lot of C.S. Lewis. He used a lot of Thomas Aquinas and these are names that I knew. These are names that I knew of, but as a non-Christian, right? As a non as an unbeliever. So, to be able to make those connections and to realize that even these individuals were pursuing a certain truth as well, that itself was um, was very humbling. And I think it started to kind of break some break some barriers, tear down some walls as well within my heart. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, there isn't really much I have to say about these things. I'm not a, my wife's the English major, if anything, so yeah, (laughs) um, but definitely, um, you know, I could, I see those type of divisions, like in terms of truth versus power and how that's applied, I guess in, in life today. So
1: totally. Yeah. All right. Um, Well, thank you, Stan. Thank you for your time. Um, And thanks for, you know, being willing to come on, share some thoughts um, and go over some of your story and what you're thinking about. Um, I appreciate your time. I appreciate uh, you being flexible with the scheduling. Um, I had a blast and I'm sure we'll, you know, we'll continue to have these conversations, whether it's uh, on the podcast or not. So, yeah, of
0: course. Looking forward to it. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All right.